Our conversation today is with Itoro Basse, formerly known as Itoro Dorfia. Itoro is a first-generation American writer, blogger, cultural worker, and educator. She has a Bachelor of Art in African-American Studies and Theater from Smith College, and a Master's of Art in International Education and Development from the Marlboro Graduate Institute. As a writer, Itero loves to tell stories that showcase strong female protagonists defying social conventions. She's currently working on her first novel, The Soy Below. The book follows the story of four generations of Nigerian women grappling with generational trauma, migration, and change as they weave themselves into the American fabric. Itero has received an honorable mention from the speculative Literature Foundation and her story to the children growing up in the aftermath of the Apparent War received a Glamour Train Very Short Fiction Award. Welcome to Diaspora Itero. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. And thank you for agreeing to speak with us from Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, Can you please tell our audience the research you currently Uh, working on the African continent? Yes, yes, yes. Um, I came out here almost a year ago now for a a writing fellowship. And from there, I had also traveled to Nigeria for the first time in 2019 with some students around a story of mine they had read running. Um, So I did some lectures there. So from there, I've been doing research around culture and expectation, especially around women and sexuality in both Nigeria and in Kenya um, and in Ethiopia, actually. And basically, I'm just listening to the stories of people, especially women, talking about sexuality how that fits in within an African context. And uh, another thing I would say around that, too, is not only sexuality, but a question of how do we self-actualize in the year 2019 after colonialism, living in a neo-colonial context, does self-actualization look like the West? So it's been interesting as a first gen coming back, (laughs) returning back home, and Uh I claim the entire continent right now as my home, to having these questions and um, these conversations because, you know, I'm... I've lived and I was born and raised in the U.S. And my answer to that is an emphatic no. I I think it would be better for um, all of us to figure out who we want to be outside of these constructs. But it's interesting to see how people who are continental Africans are really grappling with that and Mm -hmm. figuring that out for themselves. Okay, that's interesting. So you first went to Nigeria when you were two. And now you return when you are 29. 29 years later. Oh, 29 years later. When I was 29 years old or 20, yeah, 29 years later. So did you feel like a tourist there or how was it like? (laughs) Uh, I felt not like a tourist because the great thing is, I think a beautiful thing that my parents did is that they gave me an indigenous name. You know, mm-hmm. Itoro, um, back then I was using la- the last, last name Udafia. So as soon as I landed and I saw an agent, they looked at my name and they were like, oh, wow, I know exactly where your people are from. Mm-hmm. Are you here for the holiday? 
You know, there was just an assumption that I belonged there. Right. So for me, some of those fears I had around, oh, well, maybe they won't accept me or I'll just be too weird, you know, uh-huh. um, all those things just dissipated because she was like, this is your home, right? You know, there wasn't any <laughs> thought that it wasn't my home. Right. So it wasn't until I was the one who offered that information. Like, actually, I was born and raised in the U.S. Because then the second question was like, where's your Nigerian passport? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after I told her, uh, you know, I told her a little bit of the story, but not too much because, you know, there's not that much time time in a queue. Right. Um, she was just like, well, it's easy to get your passport here, you know, you know, your Nigerian passport, and you should feel at home. This mm-hmm. is your home. Wow. And many people said that to me. So I actually had a beautiful homecoming. Wow. That's so good. That's so good. It makes you just feel at home right there at the airport, right? Definitely, definitely. I see you refer to yourself as the child of a Nigerian immigrant with who bears an indigenous name. Why do you Mm -hmm. specify that? For me, it's important specifically because of how I grew up. I grew up in a very white town, predominantly white, I would say blue collar town, Right. Um, small. And there people had names like Joe and Donna and Becky. And my name was Itoro Udafia. Right. You know? um, so my full name is actually Itoro Bung uh, Udafia. Mm-hmm. That was what my name was back, back when I was growing up in Southbridge, Massachusetts. Right. And again, you have all of these people who have very, you know, very Anglo-Saxon names. Some are from Italy, you know, so they might have more Italian names, um, last names. But everybody kind of had your standard American name, like John or Joe or Dan or... But I, you know, had Itoro Udafia. So it was just interesting to see how people stumbled. Um, But never did I think back then of taking on another name, you know, Mm -hmm. like I had seen some other um, children of color kind of appease the white powers that be. And I even remember mine is Ienama. And uh, again, to appease the powers that be, Mm -hmm. she went by Emmy. Wow. Emmy really doesn't have anything to do with Ienema. <laughs> I but, know. <laughs> but that's that's what it was. So it wasn't actually until I left that small town and I was in Oakland. I just needed more diversity. And also, I didn't want to see snow ever again. <laughs> so I moved out to California. Yeah, that was a good um, Oakland. <laughs> So it wasn't until I had met more Black people in general out there, um, but I remember going on a first date with a Nigerian man, mm-hmm. and he was like, your name, he was just really blessed you with giving you an Indigenous name, giving you a name that's from your homeland. You can wow. trace that back. Mm-hmm. He was like, I live five hours away from there. Wow. You know? Yeah. So there was something, yeah, there's something in a name. And also it just never occurred to me to ever change Itoro. You know, I was like, no, you'll you'll learn how to say this one. It's not (laughs) that difficult for you. I know, (laughs) I know. It's not difficult. I mean, you've seen names that are longer and more difficult to pronounce, right? (laughs) Right, right. Right. So how was it like growing up in Massachusetts in the 90s? 
Oh, what a great question. So for me, I lived a very sheltered life. I um, I consider myself Afro-rural because I think when we talk about Black people, we usually think of like cities. Right. Um, but that wasn't my experience. I was that Black girl, that African girl who really wanted to get to a city <laughs> because I lived in a mostly homogenous place, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's funny. So it was, um, it was, a, it was a quieter kind of life, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't been there in a few years, but, you know, we had a main street, like one, like kind of downtown area, but it was pretty sleepy. Um, oh, wow. I remember having Blockbuster <laughs> and another video place where we could go to rent out what's like, wow, VHSs. I right. remember my CD-ROMs and stuff. I remember walking to Friendly's, a very small town. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so just growing up, there weren't many, you know, um, Africans who were living out there. But we actually did have a... Had, a lot of Puerto Ricans right. out there because it was actually quite nice. I was able at least to get some color, mm-hmm. um, but the town consisted of like a lot of, like a lot of European immigrants in general who had settled there, Albanians, Polish people, Italians. Um, and then of course you had your standard Anglo-Saxons, Right. you know, the Puerto Ricans had a tendency to live here. Whereas the white people seem to live more in like the forested areas that had more land and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So I do remember that. And I do remember us being the only family of color and black family wow. that lived out in the forest, <laughs> you know. And that's another thing, too, that I um, try to be upfront about my life, like mother especially did a great job of shielding us from maybe what our actual financial situation was. Mm-hmm. But we we had a very working middle class upbringing, okay. hands down. Not a lot of Black people around. I remember having one very close Black friend. Uh, we didn't go to the same school. Mm-hmm. I went to another school, like a more, um, a school, a high school. Right. That would put you on like a college track. So we also had very intense class distinctions Mm -hmm. because in my town, the vocational school was considered where the dumb kids will get an actual skill, like in carpentry or in hairdressing. Like go learn to learn now. Go learn to do something. (laughs) But you know, that was referred to as like the dumb school, Uh you know, but such a great hair braider. So she was the one who would really help me keep just my culture, but also black culture. Right. So I'll always be thankful for her for that. And our families actually kind of, um, there was many kids in both of our families. So we each kind of had one person from the other family that we were like close with. Right. Um, So we grew up together. Yeah, yeah. But it was kind of your standard, I would say, experience of being a Black, lonely girl, kind mm-hmm. of isolated in a white landscape, right? Um, especially in school. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, these white teachers who... <laughs> 
like I I feel like it's kind of a standard immigrant thing for like once your parents land here, they're thinking about how the children will succeed. So education was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was just a lot of pressure to succeed and to master and all that stuff. So I, I did struggle with some teachers who just wanted to put me on a different on um, a different track. There was one class I had where a different track, the school separating the honors students from federal class. Right. Which, you know, is not the advanced class because you know the people are the ones who are gonna go on to college or track to be really successful. Mm-hmm. I had a few teachers who constantly me in the general even when I had the grades to go to the honors class. Wow. And back then I didn't have the language to say, you know, I think somehow intuitively I knew, but I didn't have the language to say this is structural racism or right. this is, you know, um, bigotry. And like back then it's like, this is idiocy. I'm just trying to like live so I don't get screamed at. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there was just a lot of self-advocacy I remember had to do to even be in um, certain classes or to like have certain opportunities. And I did get them, but I, I if I didn't have certain allies in the think I could have um, fallen through the cracks. And also I was a little bit of a troublemaker. You know, I'm not going to deny that either. I think there's like this kind of um, model immigrant. <laughs> Right. <laughs> narrative that goes around of just wanting to achieve. I actually wasn't so sure about that. I wasn't always sure. About, I think because of the type of structure I had, I was definitely pushed <laughs> to go. But I wanted to like run around like some of the other friends I saw doing were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was also a tension for me growing up as well. Like, do I want to go the school track? Is that what I really want to do? Or do I just want to hang out on the street corner and have quick fun um, like I saw in my neighborhood? Right. So, so yeah, interesting times. That's funny. So is that what we see in your story running? Because you talk about the story of Arid in the search of a world that, yes. you know, that has space for how she chooses to show up in it. Like, you know, she's always running. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I just think, I know in my own experience, and I, I once you read running, the question that usually get asked is, is this about you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in many ways, (laughs) right? Yeah, in many ways, definitely, yes. Because I also think, you know, kind of what Toni Morrison said, if you haven't seen a book that you want to read, yes, yet you must write it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I, I feel like there, I want more stories where you see people struggling with who they're supposed to be and expectation. And I know I'm not the first one to do that, but I think especially for Black immigrant women who are born in that the U.S. is the only home you've really known. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Eric, she, similar to me, you know, she she hasn't been back and forth to Nigeria like that. And that was actually something that came up when I went back to Nigeria for the second time, um, the Nigerian students over there, mm-hmm. international school. So, you know, an in international school, these kids have money. Right, you know? I know. 
you know, well, why didn't Eric just fly home every year? <laughs> and I was just like, oh, <laughs> hold up right there, you know? Um, so that became a very teachable moment about just growing up working class, working poor and money um, and how sometimes that's just not something that's afforded to you. Right. And also if you're growing up like I did, I feel, again, very sheltered, almost sequestered and isolated, the culture becomes very different, you know, mm -hmm. um, the way that gets expressed. So, yeah, yeah, I think Arit definitely is dealing with that. She's dealing with gaps, um, gaps in culture, and I think understanding, mm -hmm. especially with parents who, you know, as you see in the story, they have their own traumas yeah. they're dealing with. Um, so that's also where I feel I push culture, to, like what is actually culture and what is actually trauma, like this needs to be healed. Yeah. yeah. So because of that, she, she, you could say she runs um, or you can say she's trying to heal. But that was a big thing coming up, uh, especially in Nigeria. Like what is healing? What does it mean to run? Right. <laughs> and mean to stay? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And at, in those international schools, they expected you to, to be more like an American and someone, and they have the, this idea that people coming from America are not uh, are generally rich people. So how did you handle that? Mm -hmm. First of all, these students were, they were everything mm -hmm. uh, because they weren't afraid to ask questions and right. to ask really hard questions. Um, so that's it did come up like why aren't you rich <laughs> it I was a big one um and this is <laughs> and this is coming also from some of the wealthiest kids coming from the wealthiest families in the nation right <laughs> asking well, where's your money like why else do you go over to you know the west if not to make money exactly um and to have it and then to throw it around um, when you come back home. So that was that was interesting to have to answer those questions honestly, but then to also have a very much needed question about what it means to be Black in America. Right. And I'm not trying to make Blackness synonymous with struggle, mm -hmm. but it, it, it's, it is true that not everything is guaranteed. You're most likely to see people who are, you know, trying to figure out how to make a dollar out of 15 cents than seeing an Oprah Winfrey. Right. You know, mm -hmm. like that, that is a part of the reality or you're seeing, you know, black school and all that stuff and figure out how to make something of themselves in a world that tells you you need school and a college education in order to make something of yourself. Mm -hmm. And then you see what happens when they leave school and there are no jobs. So then they have to completely figure out, okay, do I become an entrepreneur? Do I become like, what do I do? Right, right. And figure out how to keep some semblance of dignity and joy, you know, I'm like, you, you still have those same questions, you know, similar to what you have in a way, um, anywhere in a particular way, you know, yeah. um, 
So it was interesting having those conversations around how does one make something of oneself when they, they're not on an equal playing field. Yeah, that's so true. And that uh, was a big conversation. Yeah, it's so true because uh, I grew up in Africa, in Cameroon, in a small village. And after graduating from the university, uh, mm-hmm. I was looking for what do I do? I have to find a job. I have to find a way to survive and to also support my family. But then I will leave Cameroon and today mm-hmm. I'm in the U.S. People in Cameroon still think that, you know, uh, I have all the money in the world and that I could do anything. I'm like, hey, it's still struggling. <laughs> so it's not like uh, there is a, a money tree <laughs> behind my house where I would go to, when you say I need $1 so $100, Jogu. Mm-hmm get it for you it's not easy so yeah it's hard to explain it to people back home they don't understand that yeah I do think it's getting I think now with especially in the age of Trump Mm -hmm. (laughs) the veil has been lifted in particular ways so since I've been out here um, I've actually had very intense and um I would say insightful conversations about um, blackness in America and Africans like continental Africans really asking why do people shoot black people so much? Right. First of all, why do y'all shoot people so much? (laughs) And secondly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) why do you shoot black people so much, especially black men? Right. Um, Supposedly, you know, one of the best nations, if not the best nation on earth, but yet Trump is here, you know, like in the age of Trump, the the veil has been lifted and it's getting easier. At least 10 years ago, it was very difficult. I remember to have this conversation right. around blackness in America. And now it's becoming, you know, easier to scaffold, like, because you see it and it's just so flagrant, you have continental Africans asking more, mm-hmm. like, why do you all shoot people <laughs> like these mass shootings? What mm-hmm. what quality of life do I have <laughs> if this could happen when I'm trying to enjoy my life? Uh-huh. Why do you shoot black men in this way? Why do you kill black people in this way? What is your problem? And I've been having this with all types of people. Wow. Um, That's like so hard. Everywhere, everyone just asking these questions now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. It's, uh, it can be scary when you're thinking about going to places uh, where there are a lot of people. You're always on the lookout, mm-hmm. making sure that, you know, there mm-hmm. is nothing funny around. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting time to be alive because, I mean, for the first time in a long time, I mean, I still have those conversations where people are like, look, I'm trying to get over there. Will mm-hmm. you, will, how will you get me a green card? <laughs> I do have those conversations. Yeah, I know. And <laughs> I'm also getting those conversations now of, I don't really want to go there. Maybe yeah. I'll visit here instead, or maybe I'll visit there and I'll come, come back here. Cause I actually like the quality of life I have at home. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's hard here, but actually if you may, here anywhere yeah you know so i'm seeing a lot of creativity in in ways i didn't see in the same way years ago right 
uh, things are changing, like you say, in Africa, and there is a lot of opportunities, and technology has made it so easy for many also to uh, to mm-hmm. succeed without wanting to be in the government. Because yeah. when the government is the only employer, it's always hard to uh, to to get a job. But if you have opportunities that technology opens and social media, and it's easier for many people now to start showing their entrepreneurship skills and, you know, starting their own and not having to depend on the government, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Nairobi, I think, in terms of technology, is just definitely um, leveraging that. Like, I've just seen so many different apps launch out mm-hmm. here. Right. It's just very, very ahead um, and just so creative. There's mm-hmm. so many different creatives out here. Yeah. I just, I think it's a beautiful time right now for Africa. It I is. really do. Yeah, it is. I, I know that in Kenya, they're trying to build a technology city like Silicon Valley. Uh, Silicon Valley. So that's, uh, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing. Again, I think it goes back to the questions and the conversation that have been raised in the research like Mm -hmm. what does self-actualization look like is it a hybrid of the west and our own cultures does it have to look exactly like the west right i think especially with technology this is a question like is the western way is the silicon valley way the best way Mm -hmm. or can we come up with our own way Yeah, I'm sure there are ways and whatever way they come up with, it would still be an African perspective. Because when you look at uh, at Rwanda, for example, uh, the country has its own ways of uh, advertising the country or promoting the country. And whatever way they do, they also Uh put into context the Rwandan culture, multiple facets of uh, the culture. Right. right? Definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, going back to school, I know in school you read a lot of Shakespeare, Shakespearean books and other, you know, authors. So how was your experience in college? Mm-hmm. Ooh, in college, I immediately enrolled in African-American studies. Right. <laughs> so I just, I felt like it was very important for me to do that as part of being in the U.S., But also because I wanted to know, I wanted to know the great canonical black authors and literature. So actually what jumpstarted that curiosity for me was my father. He, um, during high school and middle school, he would give me different books to read from black authors. So I remember reading Alice Walker's Meridian's. And really being in love with The Color Purple, the movie. I, right. I just loved that movie growing yeah, up. I haven't seen it. But um, yeah, I'll and it then <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to let me know what you think of it when you do watch it. Okay, I will. <laughs> so, yes, there was that. Then my father also had me read and actually grade some papers of his on a book his class was Larson's quicksand and passing. Mm -hmm. So I was just so happy when I got to college and I saw that this same book was on the syllabus. Wow. 
So I'm very, very thankful. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just, I was reading a bunch of black authors. I remember taking a class, um, in the Harlem Renaissance and going, wow, what a time. I know. And then also really wanting to learn more about Africa and Nigeria and feminisms in Nigeria, mm-hmm. study around that. And then saying, I'm going to get back to Africa somehow. <laughs> um, so study abroad. <laughs> right, right. And um, I just remember that um, I couldn't go to Nigeria because they said politically it was too, too, um, I think the word that they used was hostile or whatever. But they were like, you can go to Ghana. So (laughs) I found a program to go to in Ghana Uh for a semester. And then I remember interning at the Center for Folk Life and Cultural Heritage, doing research around first and second gen children, um, African children in the U.S. So it's been, you know, culture and the immigrants, um, the African immigrant experience has been a part. It's just been my life, my experience and also my life's work. Mm -hmm. So... Smith College. Why Smith? I know that Smith was created in the 1800s when, uh, you know, there was no equal education for men and women. And the idea was a radical one at the time. And, you know, they wanted to provide women with the best of education available. Is that why you went there? Or why, why did you choose Smith College? You know, I'll definitely take <laughs> your, um, your guess your educated guest uh-huh. <laughs> over the reason why I really went. But the reason why I really went was because I didn't have to have, a ma- I didn't have to take math. There wasn't a core <laughs> curriculum I had to take. Right. That because- sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> really struggle in <laughs> math and the sciences. So it was really my mother. She, she had done, some research. Um, and of course she wanted me to go to a really good school mm-hmm. and she wanted me to be closer to home as well. Yeah. Cause Smith was only an hour away mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. where I grew up. So she was like Smith and you know, me being kind of a, a little rebellious and resistant right. was like, no, I don't want to go to Smith, you know, <laughs> How about Boston University or Syracuse or Northeastern? Right. You wanted to get out you know, of there. You know, something more city. <laughs> but then, oh, yeah, I was like, I want to be out. Uh-huh. Um, but then she had me, my mom signed me up for some sort of diversity weekend mm-hmm. uh, uh, at Smith. I fell in love. Wow. I love the community. I love the different people I met. And it was nice because I got to meet other women of color, mm-hmm. people of color there. And I just felt like I think I'd want to be here. I could see myself there. So that's what made me finally decide that Smith was the right place for me. Right. In Northampton, they do have a lot of snow there too. I've been there a few times. Yeah. I wasn't able to get away from the snow just yet. <laughs> but Right. So, uh, yeah, we're talking about Smith College and why you chose Smith and the fact that you wanted to go to a bigger city and your mom was like, no, go out there and check out some some things about Smith. Yeah, yeah, I'm really thankful that she did that. 
because also with Smith College, I didn't have the best SAT scores. Mm-hmm. So I also remember there being more gentleness around that. Right. Like, well, what else do you do? Like, what are your extracurriculars? What's your vision? So there was just there was just a easier, not easier, but there was a clear pathway for someone like me. Right. Who, you know, I did well in school, but I also struggled. So there was space for that. Mm-hmm. But I also knew I was strong in mind right. as well. Yeah. And I feel like the, the the admissions there, they saw that. There was something about Smith that let me know this is where I belong. And I didn't have to take math or science. Yeah, so, that's funny. <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. So and what was uh, the expectation then when you defined, when you finally decided to go to, to Smith? And uh, what were your some of the impressions in school, in classes? Let's see. I don't know. I, I think I know if I were to ask myself, like, what do you want from this experience? Mm-hmm. You know, I'd probably say the standard thing. Like, I want to, you know... <laughs> I want to change major, the world. have a solid major so I oh, can get okay. a solid job and I don't know, maybe yeah, rule the world one day. But right. I think the real raw emotional answer is to meet more black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I really did. That to, was like to, a number see, one goal. To see so the that world. was what I did immediately. I want to see the world. I want to learn about the world. I'm not quite sure who I'm going to be, mm-hmm. but I just want to investigate. Yeah. Really yeah. investigate and also learn more about my own humanity in the process. Mm-hmm. And throughout your, pro- your, your degree, did you have a good experience at the school? Oh, Smith. So like most places, and I just want to say that I'm a Smithy till the day I die. Okay. I actually really love Smith. Wow. Um, so what I loved about Smith is that they had a beautiful theater program and I minored in theater. Right. And there were professors there who really just held you. Like I remember one of the professors there encouraging me to write. I, I'll never forget um, Paula Giddings. She was just like, like you've got something. Mm-hmm. And if it weren't for t- teachers like her, I might not have continued in the same way. So for that, I... I'm forever thankful. And we are talking about <laughs> an institution in the United States. Right. Um, like, and you've done the research too. It came out of a particular <laughs> and spirit. Uh-huh. And Black students especially have had to do a lot of work around making a space for us on that campus. Mm-hmm. That much I know. Um, we've had to do a lot of pushing in terms of curriculum in terms of the arts, in terms of just having a space, mm-hmm. just a space to exist. And I know that kind of work is still happening. So, yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm a part of the generation that got to see its first Black president. So I was there from 2005 to 2009. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama got into office 2008. Um, that happened on Smith campus. Wow. You know, like mm-hmm. I'll never forget the just the sheer jubilation, like the entire campus was screaming when this man got elected. Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. So here's like this huge cultural, political, social moment. But I'll never forget when 
this was happening, I wanted to go see a friend in another dorm. So I was walking there and I had my hoodie on and, you know, we're college students. So college students, you know how we dress. Right, right. <laughs> like we just rolled out of bed. I know. No matter yeah, yeah. what time it is. <laughs> you know, and it was cold. Uh (laughs) So I had my hoodie on and my sweatpants on. And and I remember, you know, uh, ringing the doorbell and this white lady, um, another student opened the door. And I'll never forget the way she stared at me. But it was a stare of like, who are you? You know, and I had been there so many times and it was still during dinner time, too. So it's just like I, I don't don't quite get it. I should be able to come in here. And I remember her just questioning me, like, who are you? What are you doing here? So I remember saying, I'm a student and I'm here to see a friend. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget that this is happening as the first Black president is being elected to the highest office in the land. So we can never... And, you know, for me, it was such a big lesson and also a great lesson. So I Mm -hmm. think that very interesting white lady that day, because I think she also taught me something about how even though we have these big cultural, political, social moments, we can never forget the day to day. And I think that's what a lot of Black students on campus are dealing with, the day to day, the micro Mm-hmm. of can I just go from point A to point B without being stopped by campus security police? Right. Can I live? That type of thing. That That's still there. So that was Smith. Mm-hmm. That was Smith, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. As much as there were beautiful, beautiful things going on and initiatives being done, the day-to-day could be intense. So because of that, I really held on to my friends and my community and also my love of theater and my love of travel. Yeah. Is that what drove you to pursue a career in art? I mean, part of it, I know that one of your professors kind of encouraged you with writing and you also engage in music. And by the way, your music is very calming. Uh, is the goal some oh, sort thank of... you. Yeah. It's like healing. You're just listening to it. It's like you could just sleep. It's like meditating. Uh <laughs> What suppose that (laughs) everything that you do is more of a, uh, it's more like healing, like the book, uh, the writings, and the articles when you read them, and the music is more like uh, you're trying to help people understand where they, who they are, and how they should be at peace with themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say so. And I think anything for me that helps you go to sleep is is a good thing. (laughs) I agree. <laughs> that helps you rest a bit more. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I'd say, I, I would say that, you know, I've been doing, I feel like the writing, the music, and also the creative writing and also the article writing mm-hmm. for years, almost like a little over a decade now. And they've all grown into their different things, but somehow it also all comes together. I think 10 years ago when I was just starting out doing these three different things, it was it was really coming from a certain, like, what I would say just more, how, how do I put it? Just like somebody who was like, Black liberation has to look a certain way. Right. You know, now 10 years later, I feel like my work talks more about embodiment, about finding peace, 
because blackness looks so many different ways mm -hmm. and also what it means to be a African immigrant in the U.S. And if you've been born and raised in the U.S. too, there's all different layers mm -hmm. might look very different right? and that your path is going to be your particular path. And sometimes you have to give it all up, give up everything that you thought, mm -hmm. um, um, which I feel like I had to do. <laughs> right, so, right. Yeah. And talking about music, I saw your music on SoundCloud, but I couldn't find it on Spotify. Is that by choice? You know, I am actually not social media and promotion. Mm -hmm. It's actually where I really struggle. Right. I'm even surprised <laughs> that I've been able to, and actually quite thankful with introverted as I am. Mm -hmm. So the reason why is just because I haven't done the work around putting myself on Spotify yet. Right, right. I think the music will be good there because uh, it's a lot of calming music and you could just play it and just go to sleep. And if uh, I, I, it plays on your website pretty well and on SoundCloud, I see that too. But if you have it on a platform like Spotify, I think uh, it would be good that like, you could play it on the go without having to play from a website. Or ah, maybe Apple Music. Yeah. Thanks for that. Well, now that you've said it, mm -hmm. ooh. Apple Music. Now that you've said it, I can be accountable to you. Okay, good. <laughs> and actually do it. <laughs> uh -huh. Please do. Ooh. Yeah. And then uh, you also do cultural work. Can you tell us about some of the projects you're working on? I know you have multiple projects, but, you know, I would like you to tell my, our audience about some. Yes. So right now, out of all of the kind of um, interviews I've been having for the past year, Mm -hmm. Out of that, now it's coming a project called Bad Culture. Right. And basically the whole premise of this organization is talking within and also across diaspora about right. things within our culture that's just bad. <laughs> and saying the word, um, because it was actually me and another a friend of mine, we had we were in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. and I had visited her family with her in the south. And one day, and maybe call this just my curiosity, right. I was with her family, and she has an older sister. And I just looked at her sister, and I just wanted to know about her dating life. And then I realized that I, what I really wanted to know about was her sex life. Right. And the reason why is because Ethiopia is such a conservative country. But yet you know that everybody is getting busy. And mm -hmm. I know it probably sounds really crass saying it, but you know that they are. And her and I are actually around the same age. I was actually surprised to find out that I was a bit older. Mm -hmm. So I was asking, I was like, well, you're, you know, a woman of the 21st century. What does that mean to you? And there was immediate silence. And why would you ask me that? Which she has every right to ask. Right. Because, you know, we're just supposed to have lunch. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I told her, I was just like, I'm asking because, yeah, I, I told her because I was like, I'm asking because as an African woman as well, who has also had particular cultural pressures, cultural and just societal pressures. Right. I want to know, you know, I actually need 
some clarity around this. And I feel like this might be a very key moment to talk. And it actually was. Mm -hmm. And through that, I shared a story with her about my first experience and how that just brought about so much cultural expectation. And it was interesting to see how everyone at the table opened up to the discussion because we also had Ethiopian men at the table. Yeah. So then you had men talking about their own particular experiences, you know, as Ethiopian men, as African men who, you know, they're like, yeah, we don't have any sex education. So this is how we learn, Mm -hmm. you know? And then at the end of the discussion, we were like, what happens when we don't talk about this? Something yeah. that's just so vital to the human experience that you know everybody is engaging in it because you, you kind of have to figure out how to, or you know, on yeah. some level, or how are so many people procreating? And we just finally said it. You know, people started to say bad. <laughs> this is bad. You know, some of the experience bad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not to say that there aren't beautiful things in the culture. It's not to say and it's not to say that we don't recognize how colonialism, all this stuff, you know, in certain nations. But it's just to say, at what point do we take accountability for what has become ours and do the work of healing? Yeah, because if we continue this, this is going to be bad. Yeah. You know, so then we came up with bad bad culture. Yeah, because because when you say it, people are like, what? But when you actually can talk about it and tell stories, then people are like, huh. Okay. So we started naming what is bad. And then we're like, okay, it's pretty bad when we're talking about women who aren't sexually satisfied. And they live that their life for that for 80 years or men don't really get to know about who they are as fully self-actualized men, whatever that means to themselves. The fact that we can't talk about what it means to be queer, the fact that, you know, that, you know, um, we have a tendency to rely on certain things for validation. That's so true. Bad. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's bad. So, you know? yeah, I agree. Uh, when you think about things that are happening <laughs> in Africa, many people keep blaming colonialism. I'm like, I know colonialism was not good, and I still know that today. But we cannot say that everything that is happening in Africa now mm-hmm. is because of colonialism. There are things that we should change or that we can change, and that's bad culture. So I agree. And... Ethiopia it being one example of country yeah. where they were in some ways very independent too, right? There are things that are happening there that is just part of the culture that people need to change. Definitely. And I think that was something that kept being in Ethiopia because many people take it as a point of pride, as it should be, that they're the only African nation to never be colonized. I mean, they were occupied by the Italians, but not colonized, you know, so there is that distinction. But it was interesting to see Ethiopian Americans (laughs) go back, return home, 
um, because Ethiopia also has a really great program around bringing back Ethiopians in the diaspora to come back home and contribute. Yeah, uh, I think the president has really pushed that. So yeah. returning and I'll never forget one of my friends was just like, so they say they're not colonized, but yet you're concerned about looking light, huh? <laughs> you know, um, and uh, kind of trying to fit this Western beauty ideal. You can't tell me that something hasn't happened, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know. So we talked about that within like the context of bad culture, too. Um, because it's just like, yeah, this might be very true. Also, at the end of the day, what ideology are you practicing and are you championing? You know, mm-hmm. um, and then there was this whole other thing around Ethiopians not being African, but being Ethiopian. Right. So we were having all those kinds of conversations like, okay, so can you actually talk talk to us about that? So it was interesting having that conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, how is an Ethiopian different from an African? And then when we did talk about it, yeah, there were certain things about culture that came up, but there was also definitely certain things around being closer to whiteness that came out too. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And yet in Ethiopia, yeah. we see all the problems that we see in all other African countries. We see war, we see hunger, see discriminations, and mm-hmm. we see corruption. It's not just, and people keep saying, oh, it's because of colonialism that French-speaking countries had this. But when you look at Ethiopia, they were not colonized. So why are they having the same problem, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I just asked this question. One in one of your writings, you talk about uh, a conversation that you had with your mom, where she apologized if she failed you or recognized the fact that you know she's only human. And based on that, I, I would like to what what advice mm-hmm. I would like to ask you to share with our audience because it was a great post and definitely will add a link to that. But if you could summarize it, what what advice would you give to your young self? today that you are a woman and you use you you happen to be a child at some point mm. and you had that conversation with your mom what advice would you give to somebody to your young self to my young self i would say i would probably tell her that you'll have to learn how to be mother mm-hmm. because the people around you the adult figures around you who should be serving in that role right now don't have the capacity to in the particular ways that you need. So that'll be a part of your your growth. I'm right. not saying that it's right that you have to become your own mother, but I'm saying that that's kind of like what you've been given to work with, that it is not your fault, mm-hmm. everything that's happened. Because my young self back in the day, you know, <laughs> she she was struggling. I know she internalized a lot as her fault. And I think that's the first thing I would tell her. This is not your fault. And I will also tell her one day you'll have to give up metaphorically your life. Right. The life that you thought you were entitled to and the life that everybody told you you needed to fight for. You're going to give all that up. So enjoy the ride. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would 
tell her, enjoy the ride. And really, um, the thing that I would also tell my younger self is I really love the way you care so much about developing a spiritual life. Mm -hmm. I would just tell her to keep doing that because that'll really help you. Right, right. So things like uh, getting to know your inner self and meditating ways to recharge. So those are things that you encourage. Definitely, definitely. Because especially when you're like nine or 12 or 15, I mean, there's certain things you can articulate and some people can, but often when you're in it, you can't quite, you you might not have all the language to really say this is what's happening because you're experiencing it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think there's something to say about really knowing how to go inward and trust your inner voice, right. especially I feel as the daughter of immigrants in the United States. <laughs> I yeah. feel like that's the first thing they take away from you, especially people of color, especially black people. They don't want you to listen to yourself at all. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So, uh And I want to ask more about that. So what do you mean by listen to yourself? Well, when I think about my own experiences growing up, both coming from a strict family, but also growing up in a more rigid society as well, Mm -hmm. um, small town, there was just so many things I was told about who to be and how to be. Right. Girl, Mm -hmm. whatever that means. You know, mm-hmm. you, you want to go to school. A's are better than B's. Don't go to the, the dumb school, the vocational school. Oh, okay. Because, you know, I, I said previously, yeah, right. vocational school was considered dumb. All those things I was told as a kid. And every time I'd want to do something that would have been kind of, would have definitely been me standing up for me and mm-hmm. saying what was true for me. I always had someone around saying, no, go this way. (laughs) Yeah, I was trained to not listen to myself. Right. You know, you you just see or respect your elders, respect the adults in your life. But what happens when the adults in your life are deeply inappropriate? Mm -hmm. And I feel like those are conversations we get scared of having. What happens when they're acting like two year olds themselves? Especially (laughs) when they're African adult. (laughs) You have to follow. Yes. <laughs> what do you do? Right. So it was interesting to see, you know, how that played out for me and mm-hmm. how I was like, actually, the best thing I could do for myself is to learn how to listen to myself. Because one, that's where the healing is. Two, that's where I can get some more support on how to do that. So, you know, Growing up, I actually did start going to therapy at 15. Mm-hmm. So I'm thankful to do when I was an adult. I was just like, therapy. Right. <laughs> and I made sure I went. That's funny. <laughs> and then I would say third, two will come. And I think everybody goes through it as an adult. There's yeah. some sort of crumbling that happens around your identity and who you think you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And then you build from there in terms of who you really are. So, yeah, yeah, it's a ride. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So uh, what would you say are the most rewarding aspect of your professional 
self, like, you know, your writings and everything that you do to lift people up? I think for me, the biggest thing, and I, I think for me, this is a new revelation, is that my writing and writing in general, mm-hmm. but writing about these particular experiences, um, caring about the lives, for me specifically, of African immigrant, the, the children of African immigrants who have you know, socialized as female growing up in the U.S. for me is important. Mm-hmm. And to see how other people respond to that work, um, resonate with that work, will write something and say, I've been through this too. Even saying it for even speaking it for me has been huge. Yeah. Um, I think even bigger than that too, after I wrote the whole post on um, Tiny Buddha, on mothering yourself, Mm -hmm. there was just so much response I got from people, all people opening up about family and just finding your path and that type of heartache and what to do in the wake of failure. Right. You know, Um, so for me, that too was just very inspirational because I was just like, wow, you know, this is really about humanity. And even though I'm culturally specific in the way I talk about it, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm starting to see that there are just real universal themes around what happens when a parent disappoints you, what happens when you decide this is not the path you're going to take, this mm-hmm. is the path you're going to take, what happens when you're going to heal. Like these are, it's a part of the human condition. Yeah. You know? It's so true. It's humbling. And especially when a mother can actually and then say... I think yeah, yeah. Yeah, a mother can actually say, "Hey, I'm sorry yes. if I failed you. I'm human." That was that was powerful. Yeah, yeah. And I think, especially specifically within an African household, mm-hmm. that has so much meaning. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So for me too, that's also the rewarding thing about my work as well. Just as I do this, I learn more about what it means being first gen. Yeah, You know, um, because I think because we're growing up away from our, you know, we're creating something new. Right. Um, right. So now here, here I am talking about defying a lot of family expectation, which I still do today, <laughs> till this day. <laughs> I think that's just going to be my life. Right. <laughs> I don't, if many continental Africans, you know, would fathom ever telling a parent in this particular way, this is how you failed me. And then saying, and my, my, my folks, they, they were open about it. They were open about talking about it. I mean, I know people have had that conversation, but I feel like within the U S like this becomes so important because we're both doing something so new together Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to make it in this place. Yeah. So, yeah, that's so true. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, thanks for giving me this space. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I have one last question for you. That is a question we ask our audience. And then. Sure. So how do you define success? And do you consider yourself successful? Uh, I define success 
these days as me being able to sleep at night without many regrets mm-hmm. and without me. <laughs> I know this is going to sound probably no, a so little universal. woo-woo, but, <laughs> I love <that>. but <laughs> about me worrying about my karmic debt, uh-huh. I, I actually, I've done everything that I possibly can do to make things right you know, in the way I walk in the world. And for me, I feel like that is such a marker of success for me because there was a time when I would be up at night saying, what am I doing? Yeah. For me, success too is also living a life on your own terms. And I feel like I've done that. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've really actually done that. Success is also love, I think success is how well you love yourself right. and others. And for that, I feel like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a saint. So love is something that I do struggle with and I have struggled with. But I feel like I'm just at such a great place with it, actually. Learning how to and also forgive more, which is a process. I have to do it every day. The Bible says 70 times seven. (laughs) I do it every day. That's funny. Uh, So yeah, in those, in those ways, I feel successful. And I just also want to add, I've had to define my own definition of success. Right. Because, you know, dominant society, I feel, tells you it has to look a certain way, which usually means like, you know, a large following as a writer, a big book deal, kind of all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But for me, success is just so much more internal right now. Yeah, Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. So thank you very much for sharing your experience with our audience, Ito. This is is very much appreciated. Thank you so much. Mm Thank you. You you ask great questions. I really appreciate them. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that too. Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you'll be sharing with your friends and families. We also hope you've already subscribed. And of course, we're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. We are available on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, Castro, Castbox, and Pod Chaser. So please don't forget to subscribe. And also, if you believe that you know you have a good story, come share with us. Our audience will be more than welcoming. And if you have any feedback for us, don't forget to review us. You know, we'll grow from that. As I said earlier, we're trying to grow our audience, so please. Review us so that others can find us. Thank you.